0: Welcome to chapel this morning, glad you're here, hey, let's, um, oh Hank, let's, uh, let's pray this morning as we get started. Jesus, we are thankful to be in this place, God, I pray that you might be present in this moment and we might be aware of you in our midst in a way unlike we have before. God, give us some rest in the coming few minutes. Let us sit back and relax and just enjoy being in your presence together so that when we leave here, we are fulfilled. Lord, let us take deep breaths as we worship together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. It really is kind of a nice time to come together in chapel, I think. A nice time for us to come and breathe and just be. That's my favorite thing about the fact that we don't really require anything of you other than just being here. We don't take tests. Uh, we, don't, we don't count uh, how many things you can memorize. We don't ask you to recall things about our experience together. We just ask you to be here, and it can be a really restful time. I want to introduce you to our guest today, and I'm pretty excited because he's been here many times. The reason we bring him back time and time again is because we think it's important that each new class hear what Michael Francis has to say. Michael Francis has been on our radar for many, many years now, and we've enjoyed it each and every time he's come. He doesn't only speak in chapel. He also will be speaking to athletes and to the business school and to several other places on campus. Without giving too much of his story away, I do want to tell you that he'll be sharing his testimony this morning. He'll be sharing his story with us, and his story is one that you're going to want to hear. I think when you walk out of here, you're going to say, man, I was gl- I'm glad I was in chapel today. Let me ask you a few questions about your own life, if you don't mind just thinking about yourself for a second. Have you ever found yourself in one of those situations where you feel like you just don't know how to get out? Maybe you have a group of friends you're hanging out with, and you're like, you know, I really should be hanging out with a different group of friends, but I don't really know how to get out of this situation. Maybe it's every time you sit down at your computer. You think, I really don't want to visit these sites, but I'm doing it anyway, and this is a problem for me, and I don't know how to stop. Maybe you're just ready to clean up. Maybe you're just ready to stop doing things. Or maybe you're ready to start living a life that's one of holiness. And maybe you just don't know how. Maybe you feel trapped. And I know that some of you do because I have conversations with you. And we all feel trapped from time to time. And this is a time of life where feeling trapped can be a little bit more common. This morning I want you to know that Michael's story will inspire you. Those of you who are feeling trapped, those of you who have felt trapped in the past, he he will inspire you. He'll show you that God can free you from things and get you in places that you never thought possible. I want you to know that after uh, Michael speaks, this this isn't a sales pitch, it just is what it is. Michael's here and his story is so good that I really think you're going to want to revisit it. And you can do so, um, there's a book in the back, you can do so, you can pick that up. For those of you who are business majors um, or those of you just interested in business, he's also got a book on business um, that's back there as well. And he's very gracious and has offered to come and sign books and talk with us after chapel. So he'll be at a table in the back, so be aware of that. Now hear these words from the psalmist, and then we'll begin our time together with Michael Francis. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Michael Franzese was not just a soldier, but a capo in the notorious Colombo crime family. He spent the better part of a decade in federal prison on charges including tax fraud, racketeering, and parole violations.
1: I grew up in New York where there are five organized crime families. My dad was a underboss in the Colombo crime family back in the 1960s. I went to see my dad in Leavenworth, and uh, I said, Dad, listen, I don't want to go to school anymore. During the course of that visit, he said to me, listen, if your mind is made up and you don't want to go to school, then uh, if you're going to be on the street, I want you to be on the street in the right way. And that's how it started for me. Michael Francis was a made member of organized crime. His main forte was, was making money for the mob. In a very short period of time, Michael Francis made over $300 million for the Colombo organized crime family. By far the biggest and most lucrative business uh, enterprise that I got involved in was the wholesale gasoline business. In a nutshell, we devised a way to sell the gas, collect the taxes, and not pay the taxes. I was there to be in business and to make money, real money. How much money do you think uh, you and Michael with your gang stole in your office? Several hundred million.
0: Life magazine called him the mob's young genius. The government calls him one of the biggest money earners in the history of organized crime.
1: Handsome and high-living young man, as rich as royalty. And royal he is. A prince of the mafia.
0: Michael Francis has been called every name under the sun by people on both sides of the law.
1: Made millions, lived a flashy life, and came to be known as the Yuppie Don. Did you fix any games in college? Absolutely. He says he doesn't have 14 million dollars. He doesn't. He has about 50 million. How do you know that? Because I personally delivered it to him. I was notorious, maybe infamous, maybe sophisticated at times, but I was a criminal. And you realize that it's a life built on treachery and that money and power are the driving forces. I really questioned the life and my commitment to that life at that moment.
0: But now, the former yuppie Don has transformed himself into a suburban dad, a pillar of his California community, and a little league manager of renown. I got faith in you. Do it, buddy. What he's doing is so much fun because he's helping us little kids learn how to play baseball. To be honest, I've had judges and politicians that are ministers that are a lot worse than him. (laughs) And now a former mob guy from the mafia is coaching third base and teaching the kids how to hit and run what's so weird about that this is what little league's all about how someone can turn around their life what an example for children this is
1: Morning. Morning. morning, how often do you have a rap singer introduce your guest speaker? Anyway, uh, this looks like it's a little bit more filled than the one before, but we had a great uh, 20 minutes, half an hour this morning, and this is uh, probably my fifth trip back to Baylor. I visited in the last 10 years over 400 universities, and I tell you this, not because I'm here, but because it's the truth, Baylor is at the top of my list. I mean, everybody is terrific here, I love coming back here, I'll be here for three days, Uh, Speaking tonight to student-athletes about gambling and and other things, and tomorrow a couple of business classes. I think Wednesday they're bringing me to a prison. I said, that's fine, as long as I can check in and check out. and They don't keep me there. I'm okay with that. But uh, we always do a lot of stuff, so maybe I'll see you again beyond chapel. But uh, really great to be here. The students this morning were terrific, as usual. You know, one thing I like about Baylor, I ask the kids all the time, I say, how do you like the school here? And they don't say, "Ah, that's okay, it's not bad. They always say, I love it. You know, so something's going on right over here. I tried to get my son to come here. He's an athlete. He's 20 years old, but uh, uh, he went to University of South Florida instead. And um, I'm a little disappointed, but good for Baylor because he didn't quite make it through University of South Florida. He went there on a scholarship, did great for baseball. They loved him in there. One problem, he didn't want to go to class. And uh, I said, Mike, you got to do both. He said, well, Dad, I hate school. I said, I know, but you're in school and you got to do both. Well, he didn't quite buy that, so uh, we had to take him out of the University of South Florida. That's another, another uh, story. But i got to tell you this. You know, I love coming and speaking to young people because I'm really interested in young people. I really mean that. And uh, I've got seven kids of my own. i got five girls, two boys. My four daughters graduated colleges. Great, no problem. You know, little things here and there, but they've been terrific. My little 11-year-old, she's not ready yet. She's my little princess. My two boys, different story big struggle. I tell them all the time, you know what, guys, if I can trade you in for two more daughters, you'd be gone in a second, and they know I'm, I'm serious, but anyway, uh, Michael Jr., don't know where he got it from, but anyway, but uh, listen, I, I, uh, I really appreciate coming here, and you know, whenever a speaker comes here in chapel, we're only here for one reason, not to tell you a great story about ourselves, not to say all these wonderful things we've accomplished, uh, but we're here for a reason, and that is to let you understand that God is really at work in people's lives. And I heard what Brian said, you know, about some of you struggling out there with issues. i got to be honest with you. I know just about every issue that you could be going through, and I really mean that. The eight years I spent in prison, a lot of young people came into the system, made some mistakes in their lives, tough family backgrounds, broken homes, so on and so forth, got involved with the local gang, a drug dealer, and ended up doing a 20 in prison. Tough situation. Sometimes you pay dearly for the mistakes that you make and the choices that you make in life. I know all about the drugs. I know all about the alcohol. I know all about the gambling issues that some of you are facing in here. I understand all of that. We're going to talk about the athletes with uh, with the athletes tonight. So I understand what's going on. I know some of you are struggling, no doubt about it. And some of you feel that, you know what, you've already screwed up so bad or you've been, you know, sinful in your life and God doesn't really have a plan and purpose for you that you're able to fulfill but I'm here really to, to do two things. Number one, to really remind you that God does have a plan and purpose for your life. And you know what? Some of you have a goal already, okay? You got a major, you're studying, you know what you want to be in your life. I get it. Some of you don't know yet. You're not sure. You're just passing through here. You're going to get your education. You're going to see where it goes from there. But I'm going to tell you this. I've had, I think, four different goals in my life, plans or purposes, whatever you want to call them. When I was a kid, okay, easy. I wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. Mickey Mantle was my idol. I was a ball player. That's what I wanted to do. One problem. I wasn't good enough. That's number one. Secondly, I was going to school to be a doctor. That was my next goal, my next plan <clears throat> and purpose for my life. I got, to med- I got to pre-med Hofstra University. Something happened. Okay, unbeknownst to me, I didn't plan for it, but it changed the course of my life. I'll get into that. It's part of my story. <clears throat> next, got involved in organized crime became a member of the Colombo crime family, a sworn maid member. I wanted to become boss of the family, wanted to please my dad. That's the road that I was on. Didn't quite work out. And now, people, excuse me, I think I finally discovered my purpose in life, or actually what God's purpose and plan was for my life. And that's what I'm doing now, trying to encourage you, really share what the Lord has done in my life, and try to be a benefit to the people that I speak to. And that's what this is all about. It's not about me. Some of you are going to listen and say, man, man, Mike, that's a dramatic story. How did you ever get through that? What a great thing you did. No. I want to tell you this right now. Take a good look at me, because I'm probably the most blessed, the most fortunate person you're ever going to see in your life. You saw the DVD. If I was left up to my own, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. That's what I deserved in my life. It's certainly what I earned spending 17 years on the street in that life. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, it wasn't for the fact that he had a different plan and a purpose for my life, then there is no doubt about it, I wouldn't be here today. I had no part in this. I didn't plan to be a speaker. I didn't know how I was going to get out of that life when I made a decision to leave. Everybody predicted my death, and it was only because God had a different plan and a purpose for me. So I want to tell you this, okay? No matter what you're thinking now, you may be here today and end up 180 degrees to the other side at some point in life, and you're going to have some choices. You could end up 180 degrees to the good. You can end up 180 degrees to your bed. It's going to be your choice, but I will tell you this. If you put Jesus in the center of your life, if he becomes your focus, if you say, aside from anything else, my plan and my goal in life is to get closer to Christ, then he will get closer to you. He will reveal his purpose for your life, and you will go on and you will be very fulfilled. I've never been as fulfilled as I am today, and people, I've had it all jet plane, helicopter, seven, eight, nine million dollars 9000000 million a week coming into my operation, okay? I was living high on a hog at one point in time, but was never as fulfilled as I am today, fulfilling what I believe is God's purpose and plan for my life. So I want you to keep that in mind, okay? It's very, very important, especially at this age. If you can get filled with the Spirit and you can get a direction at this point in your life, okay, it's really going to benefit you, trust me. And you're in a great place to get educated. I know what, they, what their philosophy is here. It's terrific. Take advantage of it. Don't mess it up. It's important. I hate to see any young people get in trouble. I really mean that. Because you, you don't realize sometimes, okay, some of the consequences and some of the baggage you can pick up in life and how hard it is to get rid of it once you get started. Anyway, I'm going to tell you a little mob story, okay? Give you a little Mob 101. Now, when I go back to New York, I don't have to do that. I've got to be careful. There's nobody in the audience I've got to worry about. But out here, you don't have too much of a mob presence. And for all you guys out there, I know guys get turned on by this. Hey, you used to watch The Sopranos. Sopranos is off the air. You can hear what the real thing has to say a little bit. It's okay. Whatever got you in the door today doesn't matter. I know if you're here today, God wants to touch your heart. And I pray every time I come out, people, I spoke in front of crowds of 20,000, and sometimes I'll go to a church where there's 100 people, and my prayer is always the same. Lord, let me be effective in delivering this message because I know you want to touch a heart in here today. Maybe one, maybe ten, maybe everybody in the room. I don't know, and I don't, I don't worry about that. That's God's issue. I just want to be effective in getting the word out. And it's kind of tough to do in 20, 25 minutes, but we've got to respect the time. So I'll do my best, and hopefully I can deliver it passionately enough. Okay, my dad was a member of the Colombo crime family in New York. Okay, it's one of the nine La Cosa Nostra families, not really the Mafia in this country, Mafia is in Italy. In America it's called La Cosa Nostra, it means this thing of ours. My dad had a very powerful position in the Colombo crime family, he was the underboss back in the 60s. Okay, and um, he originally didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to go to school and be a doctor, and I was on that road. And uh, I grew up a lot differently than most of you in here, I'm sure. I grew up hating the police. I hated them, and it wasn't because, you know, I was taught that way, but it was because of what I witnessed in my life. My dad was very high-profile, major target of law enforcement. He had police and law enforcement and FBI around us all the time as a kid growing up. Their tactics and techniques were very different against organized crime than they are today. Today, everything is very covert. they got a lot of high-tech surveillance equipment, a lot of undercover informants. Sometimes a mob guy can be under investigation not really know about it. Back then, it was different. If he was under investigation, they wanted him to know about it. And for a period of about eight years, when I was a kid growing up, my dad was under investigation from seven different agencies, FBI, IRS, Brooklyn detectives, you name it, they were on him. And they would all have a car parked around my house, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, I was one of seven kids, we'd have a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant. Cops can get out of hand every once in a while. We'd go into a restaurant, sit down, have a bite to eat. All the law enforcement people would file and afterwards sit at the table behind us. One of them would get a little nasty sometimes, make a bad remark to my dad. My dad was very hot-headed. Don't disrespect the family. He didn't go for that. He didn't care who you were. He'd jump off the table, go after the cop. My dad was a pretty tough guy. The cop would get scared, pull out his gun right in the middle of the restaurant. Me and my brother jump in between them, separate him. You know, normal stuff you do when you were a kid. And so I didn't like them very much back then. But I want to tell you this right now. I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. I don't feel that way anymore. I finally realized in my life they were the good guys most of the time, and we were the bad guys. Sometimes they get a little out of hand, but you know what? Everybody's human, good and bad and everything. Okay, but for the most part, they were the good guys, we were the bad guys, and I will tell you this, I deliver a very, very strong anti-crime message in prisons, okay, in detention centers, in high schools, you can't get away with criminal conduct in this country anymore, people. And if you go that route, you're going down. Law enforcement's too sophisticated, they got too many weapons, the consequences are too severe, too many informants on the street, okay, you go that route, you're going down. That's for another time. You want to talk about it a little bit more, okay, we can do that later. Anyway, my dad, like I said, he wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. I love my dad. I didn't care what people said about him, what I read in the newspaper. They'd make remarks about him in the schoolyard. I'd fight. Okay, I love my dad. He was a great father, great husband to my mother, very supportive of me. And uh, I was a jock in school. I played all three sports. My dad would never miss a game, never. I'd be playing baseball, and uh, I'd be up to bat, and he would show up. He'd drive up to the field in a big Lincoln or a big black Cadillac. Cars were bigger back then than they are today. He'd pull up to the field, okay? He'd get out of the car, always dressed sharp in a suit. He was a tough looking guy. Always had five or six guys with him. He would never travel alone. Get out of the car, start walking into the stands. I'd be up to bat. The umpire would take one look at them. Never call strike three on me when he seen those guys, I tell you. He was very good for my batting average back then. I tell people I played football. Nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. It's good to have a dad in a mob when you play sports. But anyway, he was great. Got in some real trouble back in the 60s. He was indicted three times, twice in the state, once for murder, once for grand larceny. Went to trial on both of those cases, was eventually acquitted, found not guilty in court. But then in 66, he was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies, eventually convicted after a lengthy trial sentence to 50 years in prison. In 1970, after losing all his appeals, he went off to Leavenworth Penitentiary to do his time. I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University, devastated when my dad got sentenced and went away. He was 50 when he went in, figured he had 50 on top of that, he'd never get out of prison alive. By the way, my dad's 92 years old today. He's done 33 years in prison since 1970, in and out five times on parole violations. When you're on parole, you're not allowed to visit with anybody that has a record or alleged to be an organized crime. When I was on parole, I had 500 and some odd people on my separation list that I had to stay away from. Some of them I never even knew. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to cemetery and meet with anybody. And my dad had a real problem with that. He kept violating, going in and out, but he's out now, and hopefully he'll stay out and and, uh, live out the rest of his life, however long that's going to be outside. But uh, I lost interest in school. Joe Colombo was the boss of my family. He said, hey, Mike, if you don't get on the street and help your dad out, he's going to die in prison. And people want to tell you something. My dad did a lot of bad things in his life. So did I. I pled guilty to a crime I was guilty of. I got a 10-year sentence, did eight on the 10. But that particular crime that my dad did all this time for, he was innocent of. No doubt in my mind. I investigated that case thoroughly, spoke with all the witnesses, gave them lie detector tests. They recanted their testimonies. Some of the agents told me it was a bad case, but so what, Mike? Your dad got away with a lot of stuff, so we got him on something he didn't do. Now, is that right? No. The system is not supposed to work like that, but we live in a real world, and that's why I tell these people, you stay in that game long enough, you're going to get burnt, and nobody's going to feel sorry for you. You want to avoid those things? You stay away from it. No sense in arguing, fighting with cops, you're never going to win. It doesn't pay. So you be smart, you avoid them, you get around them. But uh, I lose interest in school, go see my dad in the penitentiary. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't get on the street and help you out, you're going to die in here. He was upset, didn't want it for me, but he knew my mind was made up. I was pretty headstrong as a kid. And he said to me, son, if you're going to be on the street, you need to do it the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said, go home, somebody's going to be in touch with you. Just do whatever you're told. Now, of course, this was a significant moment in my life. My dad was directing me towards becoming a member of that life. But it was significant for another reason. When my dad said, go home and do what you're told, I never questioned him. I said, wait a second, Dad. You know, you never really sat down with me and talked to me about the the intricacies of this life. What am I going to be required to do? What's expected of me? Never asked him. For me, it was just blind faith. Okay, Dad, this is what you want. This is what I'll do. And the reason I bring it up, you're going to find out this in life. People are going to tell you that Christians are supposed to have blind faith. Don't challenge the Bible. Don't ever challenge God. He's going to get mad at you. He'll get upset with that. Well, you know what? Nothing can be further than the truth. How can you put your trust in Jesus Christ, like the Bible tells us, if you don't really believe He's the risen Savior? If you don't really believe or trust with all your heart that He's going to have your back through all the struggles you're going to go through in life, and there will be many, trust me. Okay, this life is tough to navigate. How do you do that? How do you put your faith in somebody you don't really know if He's going to be there for you? How do you believe in the Bible? that it's the Word of God, if you haven't investigated it, if you haven't found the evidence to prove that it's really so, how strong is your faith going to be? I'll tell you, it's not going to be that strong. No doubt. Okay? You need to challenge God. You need to be sure in your heart and your mind that the Bible truly is the Word of God and that Jesus is the risen Savior. Because I know I'm not putting my faith in anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. No way. You've got to prove this to yourself, people. You've got to look for the evidence. When I came to Christ... Okay, there isn't anybody in the world that could have forced me on it. No way. When I came to Christ, He first appealed to my intellect, and then it went out into my heart because I wanted to see the evidence. Because this incident, I trusted in my dad, and it put me in a real bad place. And I'll get to that at some point in time. And I wasn't going to do that again. And I told God, "You want? I want to see the evidence. And you know what? I know a little bit about evidence. I've been to trial five times." I've been to more grand juries than there are people in this section of the room. I know everything there is to know about this criminal justice system because when I fought, I fought for my life and my dad's life. I can debate any attorney. I know every standard of proof that exists in this country. Rudy Giuliani indicted me on a big case before he became the mayor of New York and presidential hopeful. He was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan. And he told me in a courtroom, Francis, if I convict you on this racketeering case, you're going to get 100 years. I'm giving you double what your father got. I said, hey, Rudy. Bring it on. I beat you guys four times already. I was kind of arrogant back then. I said, let's go for round five. After a seven-month trial, I was acquitted. Some of my co-defendants got convicted. I was the lead defendant. They got 30 years and up. I wouldn't be here today. He would have given me 100 years, no doubt about it. But I fought my case hard. I understand it. And people, I want to tell you this. There is more evidence to prove that the Bible is truly the Word of God and that Jesus is the risen Savior than there is for anything else that exists in this world. You take it from this ex-mob guy, and you owe it to yourself, because if we're right, okay, you owe it to yourself to prove this to yourself, that your foundation can be strong in the Word, and that God can use you in the way that He wants to. Because I want to tell you something, I was a soldier in the Colombo family, but I'm a stronger soldier now in the army of Jesus, because I believe in Him with all my heart, because of the evidence, and because of what I've experienced in my life. And that's what I try to share to all of you. I left there that day. A captain in the family put me up, took me to see the boss. Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded. He eventually died from the wounds. This is a tough life. A new boss took over. He's passed on now. And he said, Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of this life. Is that true? I said, yes. He said, well, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family. And that means if your mother is sick and she's dying, and the family calls you to service, you leave your mother's side and you come and serve us. Because from now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve the privilege, the honor to become a member, we'll let you know. This is a real commitment in life, people. You're surrendering your life, okay, to La Cosa Nostra when you get involved in this. I was 22 years old. I was in kind of a pledge period that, uh, when I left there. had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy, learn the mob business, Okay, a lot of structure in that life, a lot of discipline, a lot of authority. And I'm going to be real honest with you. For those of you that are struggling and are not sure, okay, or don't believe fully in what the Bible tells you, that sin is sin, it'll be forgiven, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. I want to tell you this, okay, I don't care what anybody has done in this room. Nobody's going to do some of the terrible things I've done in my life, okay, for 17 years on the street. That life at times is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence. And there's no escape. And if anybody tells you differently, then they weren't a member or they're not being honest with you. After about a year, I guess I proved myself worthy. Halloween night, 1974, 1975, 34 years ago this past Halloween, I took an oath and became a sworn made member of the Colombo crime family. It was myself and five other guys. We were called into a room at midnight. It was meant to be a very imposing uh, ceremony, okay? And... Um, we walked into the room individually. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration. The underboss and the consuliery were to his left and right. All the captains and the family were alongside of them. I stood up in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my finger. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, a Catholic altar card, put it in my hands and lit it a flame. It didn't hurt. It burnt quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said something that I never remember hearing before that night. And I grew up as a Catholic. I was in Catholic school from kindergarten to high school, altar boy, the whole bit. But for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school to me. I didn't really understand about a relationship with Jesus, which is what this life is all about. It's all about relationship, not about religion, not about rules and regulations. I'm not real good with rules and regulations. But relationships, that's what I want in my life. Okay? And the first time I heard this expression was that night when Tom said to me, Tonight, Michael Francis, you're being born again into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra. And if you violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, you're going to die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. He said, do you accept? I said, yes, I do. First time I was born again, I was born again into a criminal lifestyle that for the next 17 years of my life I lived in violation of the laws of God and the laws of man. And what I realize now is not by betraying that oath was I condemning myself to hell, but by accepting it I was. And people, there is a heaven and there is a hell. No doubt about it. Bible is very clear. no gray area there. I left there that day. I was motivated to do two things. I wanted to get my dad out of prison, told you about that, and I wanted to make money. I was very motivated, very aggressive. My dad said, "You make money in this light translates to power, not unlike the real world." I was fortunate knew how to use that life to benefit me in business, went on to make a lot of money. You saw the DVD, not necessary to go into that now. I was very aggressive, worked hard 18 hours a day, had a head for business. You want to read about it, you business majors, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Business book, it's out there. wasn't my idea for the title. You know, they used that, the publisher liked it, but it seems to be working. But um, read it, I think you'll you'll benefit by it. Two ways of doing business in this world, Machiavellian way, Italian philosopher, and justifies the means. You can make money that way, but it always ends up in disaster. Or Proverbs, Solomon's way, do it with integrity and have ethics, and you'll see that it'll be a lasting business venture, and you'll gain some success without a doubt. Read it, you may benefit by it. Bookstore, I think, has some out there. I'll be signing them later. Anyway, okay, uh, doing pretty good. Boss of my family comes to me in 1980. Mike, you're doing a good job. I'm going to make you a captain, captain regime. Very powerful position. And honestly, they were grooming me to be the boss. My dad was the underboss. The boss had a son. His son and me were going to take over the family. Boss, underboss, whatever way it worked out. And here's where I was at this point in time of my life so that you understand where I was when God made a change for me. I'm a captain in a family. Okay? I got 300 crazy guys under me ready to do anything I tell them to do. From 1980 until 93, I was a captain in that family. Okay? I'm bringing in $8, 9000000 million a week. I got my own jet plane, my own helicopter, house in Florida, house in uh, <clears throat> California, house in New York. Okay? I beat five cases. I figure, who's better than me? I got it going on. Anything the government throws at me, I became a major target I can beat them at. I didn't need God. I believed in God. It doesn't make sense for me not to believe in God. I think evolution is the biggest joke ever played on mankind. It's not a fact. It's a theory. Okay? That nobody's been able to prove until they find this missing link. Okay? But I believed in God, but did I rely on him? No. Did I need him in my life? No. Was I looking for him? No. But you know what I found out, people? When you don't want God, he still wants you, and he will pursue you. And once he's got a piece of your heart, he's never going to let you go. If you're in this room today, God's got a piece of your heart. Somehow, some way, he's never going to let you go. He's going to get your attention, either the easy way or the hard way. Got mine a hard way. Here's when a change occurred in my life. Among many things I was doing, I was making movies. Regular movies, not porno movies. They hit them all at porno. I wasn't into porno. Still not. Okay? Regular movies. I had a distribution and production company. All right? Somebody came to me. They said, Mike, I want you to make this breakdance movie. Kind of a contemporary West Side Story. A lot of music. A lot of dance. A lot of rap music. Okay? Rap music was a little different back then. You can listen to it in a car. Not like today. Forget about it today. You can't listen to this stuff. My son, Michael, has got an iPod with 8,000 songs on it. Okay, 7,990 of them are rap And he knows the words to every one of them I swear, the kid gets in the car, he puts on 105.9 Starts singing, I said, Mike, I don't want to hear this stuff Dad, I only listen to the beats I said, well, how come you are singing every word? How could you know every word of every rap song that ever existed? It's unbelievable Okay, he flunks out of school, but he knows every rap song He said, I told you, be a singer <clears throat> Anyway, it was different back then We had the Sugar Hill Gang, the Fat Boys, Curtis Blow They were cool, you could listen to them I said, okay, I'll make the movie. I said, I like music and dance. We're going to film it in Florida. i got a house down there. I like the warm weather. So we're deciding to do that. It's called Nights of the City. I think you can still rent it on video. Smokey Robinson did some music for me. Sammy Davis, last film he did before he died. He was a friend. So anyway, we're getting ready. We're in pre-production. i got the cast and crew staying in a hotel in South Florida. And um, getting ready to film in a couple of days. Guys, you'll appreciate by this, uh, uh, this rather. It hasn't happened to you yet, I'm sure. Maybe it has, but this is going to happen to you one day. Trust me, guys. I'm sitting by the pool, beautiful day, having a drink, talking to some of my guys, just minding my own business. And all of a sudden, I kid you not, this beautiful, gorgeous 20-year-old girl comes up out of the water. It was like a scene out of a movie for me. Everything went in slow motion like a Pepsi commercial. I'm staring at her, and she just blew me away. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. That thunderbolt hit me. Okay? I, she had, it looked like a dancer to me. She had a dancer's body. I get a hold of the choreographer. I say, Jeff, is this one of your girls? He said, Yeah. I said, Bring her over. I want to meet her. What's her name? He said, Camille. I figure, Hey, big shot producer. She want to meet me? Why not? Right? She comes over. I said, Camille, my name is Michael. I introduced myself to her. I said, Listen, I said, I want to take you uh, to lunch. You go with me? She says, Yeah, no problem. Very sweet, beautiful smile, very polite. We set a time and a place. I go to lunch. I'm going to impress her. Uh, I get this big uh, restaurant on top of one of the hotels. I'm waiting a half an hour. She don't show up. She stands me up. Imagine that. Stands up a mob guy. She didn't know who I was, but she did anyway. Anyway, I see her on a set one day. I say, Camille, you missed that time. Why don't we try again? She doesn't even make an excuse. She says, okay, no problem. Smiles, sweet. Set another time in a place. I go. She doesn't show up again. Now, she does this to me five times. If she was sitting here, she's saying, don't exaggerate. no, no, no. I was the offended party. I wasn't used to rejection. It was five times. I really want this girl. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. You know, it's funny, I got my my four daughters, they date, they bring these guys home, these knuckleheads. I say, hey, look, I said, you know, you want to get some guy, you play hard to get. Some things don't change in life. You don't want to make it easy for these guys. Guys, you may not like this, we'll talk about it later on, it's okay. But, uh, you know, they say, oh, come on, Dad, you know, you're old-fashioned, you wear your pants too short, you listen to Frank Sinatra. I said, Okay. But you know what? I get even with them. They bring these guys to the house. I tell them, hey, come here, sit down. I'm not from L.A., I'm from Brooklyn. Let me tell you how you're going to treat my daughter. And then I scare the hell out of them right off the bat, you know. They tell me, hey, Daddy, please don't, hold, don't come to our high school. All the guys are afraid of us is we'll behave yourself, and I won't come. really works. Anyway, um, she's, we're having a cast meeting one night. It's 930 at night, and uh, she comes out of the meeting. She's upset because I'm watching her all the time. She's upset. I'm saying, oh, this is my chance. Who's ever bothering her, I'm going to take care of it. I'll be her hero. I got it made, tailor-made for me. We start to talk. She tells me she's from Anaheim, California. She used to dance at Disneyland. She had no idea what she was getting involved with with me. And she starts to tell me, you know, her mom and dad are upset. She was never really away from home this long. M- movie sets can get kind of crazy, you know, wild things go on over there. And I'm saying, what do you mean wild things? You're a dancer. What's, what's the big deal? And then I'm starting to think, we used to go to these clubs in Fort Lauderdale. She would never show up late at night. She'd eat, and she'd go back to her room. She was a hot dancer, but she'd do it on the set, rehearsal and all of that. And in the conversation, somehow it comes out, uh, I don't know, I'm a Christian or I'm a girl of faith, something like that. And I said, you know, I'm a Catholic. we got something in common. Let's talk. I figured anything to get to know her a little better, right? But um, I got to cut to the chase, as we used to say on the street, make a long story short. I fell madly in love with this young woman. And she's now my wife of 24 years. And uh, there's no doubt that she was the catalyst that God used to bring me to the Lord. And I want to tell you this you know, I realize now that I was running parallel to God. You're going to find this out in your life, okay? God is going to put people in your life, He's going to put places, He's going to put events, He's going to allow you to go through a struggle, He's going to give you happy times, He's trying to get your attention. Okay, he's going to do it. and he knows what it is to get your attention. Now, I didn't care if she was Buddhist, Islam. It wasn't anything to do about God. She used to talk to me about God. I used to humor her. I was falling in love with a beautiful woman. God knew how to get my attention. It was all about this girl, okay? She used to talk to me about Jesus. Hey, great, you know, Jesus, great. yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, that's great. You know, let's get on with our life, you know? But, you know, she was working on me. Her mother was a strong Christian. They were starting to put thoughts in my head. This was the process. God knew I was a tough case, and he had to get to me in his way. Okay, you know what the most amazing thing was? She was Mexican. I never even met a burrito before I met her. You know, we didn't have Mexicans back in New York back then. First Mexican I met, I, I married. I love Mexicans now, will be honest with you. But a but, uh, great woman. Latin women, you got to watch it. That's tough, but you get a good one, you got it made, let me tell you. But anyway, um, but you know what's amazing? I fall in love with this girl, and she's becoming more important to me than the oath that I took, more important than this bond that I had with my dad. It was never on my radar screen, guys especially, ever to walk away from that life. I told you where I was at that point for a reason. Never. You don't walk away from that life, okay? You die for doing that. Everybody predicted my death, but yet I didn't care. I said I want to be with this woman. She was stronger pull to me than anything else. Had nothing to do with God at that point, but He was using her to get my attention. Long story short, we plan to get married. They're going to indict me on another big case. They don't let you go when you get in that life, and you become a target like I was. I tell my lawyer I'm going to take a plea. I beat them so many times. They want to get some time on me. I'll give them some money. I'll give him some of my assets. I'll marry a Camille, move out to the West Coast, live happily ever after with her. After I get out of jail, I'll have parole and probation. The guys know I can't talk to them during that time. Maybe they'll forget about me. That was my plan. wasn't God's. I'm running parallel to God. He's putting these things, but I wasn't ready to get get with him yet. Okay? I do that, take a plea, 10-year sentence, $15 million restitution, give them the plane, the helicopter, everything. I just want to be with this girl. We move out to the West Coast. We get married in a Christian church. Okay, no problem, Christian, Catholic, wherever you want to get married. I just told her we got to do it quick. They're going to take me away. We get married in July. I go off to jail in December. While I was in jail, something happened. I was put in a position where I had to make a decision whether to renounce my life or not. I did. I never realized it would become public. But it hit the airwaves and the media in New York, and all I can tell you is this. From that point in time, all hell broke loose in my life. My dad disowned me, disowned me, didn't want to have anything to do with me. Boss of my family, he's now doing life in prison, contract on my life. I was in real trouble, real trouble. They had to lock me down in jail. Government came to me and said, Mike, you're a dead man anyhow. Words on the street. You may as well cooperate with us. We'll put you in a witness protection program. We'll save your life. I said, I don't want that. I'm not mad at the guys back there. I just want out of their life. I'm not going to testify against anybody. They don't take no for an answer. They put a tremendous amount of pressure on me. I get out of jail. I'm on parole. Thirteen months on parole, the worst time of my life. My wife and I had to keep moving. Government putting pressure on me. Everybody looking for me. I can't even begin to describe what a rough time it was with. That poor woman went through. Okay, and you know what, ladies? She'll tell you. She loved me a lot. But she'll tell anybody. If God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, she doesn't know if she could have made it. Really tough for her. And she was young. Young, 21 when I married her. Okay? They violate my parole, put me back in prison when I wouldn't testify. They're taking me to the lockdown. I'll never forget it. And on the way down there, they say to me, they confiscate my car, seize all my bank accounts, wipe me out, search one in my house, took whatever cash I had. And they lock me up and they say, Francis, you're going away forever. We don't want you to cooperate anymore. We're putting you away forever. We got new informants, old crimes, you're going back to jail. And this is my situation. They put me in that 6 by 8 that night. And I'm saying, how is this woman going to wait for me now? They just took all my money. We're broke. We don't have anything. I get everybody in New York hates me. They're going to keep me in a hole here for the rest of my life. They can't put me on a yard. They're afraid I'm going to get killed. I destroyed my life. It's over. I want to tell you something. You people are going to experience a lot of emotion in life. From ecstasy right down to grief, like I have. I've led a full life, everything in between. But I pray to God, you never have to be or feel hopeless. Hopelessness is the worst emotion in the world. When you feel you have nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, there's nothing to do to improve your situation. It's hopeless. It is the worst feeling in the world. That night in that cell, okay, my heart hurt so much. It was a physical pain. I couldn't bear it. I was a coward, weak, call me whenever you want, but I didn't know what I was going to do the next day. I couldn't face it. I said, God, if you're up there, take me away tonight because I don't even want to open my eyes. And I remember that night vividly. A prison guard walked by my cell, put a Bible in the door. I picked it up. I was angry. I threw it against the wall, At angry at God for screwing me up. I blamed him, tried to be a good guy, tried to leave that life. And look where it got me. I picked up the Bible. I started to read. First verse I came to that I paid attention to because I needed to. Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Meant something to me. Touched my heart. I had nothing but enemies that night. Why did I read that verse? Not a coincidence, people. There's no coincidences when God's trying to get your attention. I read on a little further. Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That's become the verse of my life. Whenever I sign a book, my signature don't mean anything. Everybody likes the author's signature. Okay, great. But what I write under, I won't write my name unless I write something underneath that has meaning. And I put that verse just about every time I write. It's that verse or another. From that night on, I challenged God. God, I trusted my dad once. Look where it got me. No more blind faith. Prove it to me. Prove it to me. That's the night I challenged him. The 50 years they said they were going to give me turned into four. I spent 29 months in the hole, 24-7 in lockdown. If you see my prison Bible, there's more of my notes on there than there is scripture. I searched the Bible. I wanted the proof. I wanted the evidence. I read over 400 Christian books that my wife sent me in. I had a Sony Walkman. I used to listen to pastors every day who were so gifted and talking to me about Jesus I drew so close to God in that cell And I did surrender my life I said Lord I don't know what I'm going to do But I'm giving my life up to you Take it I had no choice God will take you when you have no choice He don't care He'll take you any way he can get you He knew that the only way he was going to get my attention By throwing me in that cell And making me understand You can't help yourself now You're done You either rely on me Or your life's over So when I had no options I decided to go his way And you know what From that point on God has been such a dynamic presence in my life. He's got me through everything, people. Everybody has predicted my death. The six guys, the six of us that night we walked into the room and made and got made. I'm the only one alive today. None of the others died of natural causes. Everybody predicted my death. Everyone. You saw that Fortune magazine article, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses. I was number 18. Forty-three on that list are dead. Three of them are doing life in prison. I'm here to talk to you about Jesus Christ. When God has a plan and purpose for your life, nothing is going to get in the way. Nothing at all. Remember that. You need to discover that. You need to let God come into your life and take over, and you will see what he's doing. I want to tell you this. I never planned on being a speaker. I had no idea. I never planned on writing books. I've written four books. They're doing a movie on my life, big feature film. Next next year, they'll be featuring me in a television series about my life. And anything I do, Proverbs chapter sixteen, verses three. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. And if they don't succeed, that means it wasn't God's plan. Don't worry about it. Put it aside, something else will happen to come into place. So I hope to honor God in everything that I'm doing. Okay? I'm gonna be out there signing books. I may see some of you, you know, during the next three days. I really love all you kids. I really mean I want to see you stay straight. I can only tell you this get closer to God and he will get closer to you. God bless. Thank
0: you very much. Thanks. As a reminder, Michael will be out front. He'll sign a book if you need one, uh, but he'll also just chat with you if you want to be out there. Let's rise and receive our benediction this morning. Hear this. May the grace of God be with you today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Amen and amen. Have a great day.